Hi, I'm Nikki. Let's take a look at some things that are coming up here at Crossroads. If you're new to Crossroads or are just looking for a way to get connected, check out our Starting Point class. This casual 35-minute session meets the first Sunday of the month at 10.15 a.m. and the third Saturday of every month at 6.45 p.m. It's a great way to get to know some members of your Crossroads family. If you'd like to join us, please sign up at cccgo.com slash nextsteps. If you're part of our Senior Adults Ministry, our first service kickoff is coming up soon. It'll be Thursday, September 1st at 11 a.m. in the chapel. It'll always include a great time of worship and some delicious food. So be sure to mark your calendars for September 1st. Crossroads is dedicated to serving the church and the community. And one way we've done this is by partnering with an organization called Community One. Community One regularly repairs and sometimes restores homes all around our Evansville area. There are a lot of projects right now that really could use some help. So if you're at all interested with building or maybe even landscaping, go ahead and contact Community One to see the different ways that you can help these efforts in our community. For more information, you can check out our fall ministry catalog or visit us online at cccgo.com. Thank you so much for joining us in our service today. Well, this weekend we do continue our series, Lost in Translation, as Daryl said a moment ago. And in this series, we've been learning what it means and what it looks like for us to connect with our Creator, to connect with God on a daily basis. And, and so in this series, for the past few weeks, we've been walking through different chapters, different verses in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Now, if you haven't been with us or this is your first time back in a while, the book of Psalms kind of serves as a language guide for us when it comes to connecting with our Creator. And so Psalms helps us know and understand and communicate with God more effectively. And so today, the form of communication that we're going to look at goes back to this idea of daily worship. Now guys, take a breath here for just a minute, all right? We're not talking about singing a bunch of songs where we express our emotions and how we feel towards God, okay? I know that makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable. Years ago, there was a worship song released in one line, and that song went like this, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about that today, okay? So take a breath. While singing songs is an aspect of worship, it's not the total form of worship when we look at uh, what the Bible talks about this. And so to set the table, we've got to first look at the bigger picture, okay? We've got to first understand why you and I were created to begin with. And so it goes back to this idea that all people, all humanity, mankind, we were created to worship constantly and forever, and so daily worship is this form of communication. It's a language that God formed us with whenever we were created from the beginning of time. We see this playing out. 
I recently came across a study that uh, Canadian and Chinese researchers up at Queen's University did on infant development. And the purpose of this study was to examine at what point in time a baby adapts to the voice of his or her mom. Now, we know that babies respond to sounds and noises as early as 30 weeks into the pregnancy, and and we also know that once a baby is born, there's this natural bond and uh, bias that the baby has for their mother. But these researchers wanted to know, at what point does this bond form? Does it happen before birth or after birth? And so here's what they did. They gathered about 60 women, all in their last trimester of their pregnancy, and they, each, each woman recorded uh, them reading aloud a poem. At that point, all women were divided into two different groups, all right? And so half of the, half of the babies, half, half of the group of women, record, uh, played the sound of themselves reading the poem aloud playing it to, to their baby. And then the other half, the babies heard the sound of another woman, another voice reading that same poem aloud. And so here's what was interesting about the study. In both situations, in both circumstances, whether, baby, whether the baby was hearing the sound of their mom or the sound of another woman, their heart rate was altered in some capacity. Now, for the babies who heard the sound of their mom's voice, their heart rate accelerated in excitement due to the familiarity of her voice, while those in almost every situation who heard the voice of another woman reading the poem aloud, their heart rate decelerated. Now, the lead researcher pointed back to the fact that the reason for the decelerated heart rate for the babies who were hearing the voice of a different mother is because they were enacting what's called an attention mechanism. The baby was trying to slow down to hear the voice of something that wasn't all that familiar. You see, instincts are not learned. Instincts are not taught. We know that instincts are given. And so that's a little bit how our uh, instinct to worship plays out. That as we are being formed, as we are being made, we were created to worship. It's a natural instinct. It's, it's not something that we have to be taught. It's not something that is necessarily placed upon us. It's something that we have from the beginning of time. And so that's how daily worship looks like for us. That's how it works. Now, time out here for just a minute. I realize that in a room of this size, and those of you who are worshiping with us back in the chapel, not everybody here are followers of Jesus, right? And so you may say, well, then that just kind of disproves your point. We, I'm not a worshiper. I'm not really praising anything or anybody. Well, the reality is everybody, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're a part of an organized religion or not, you are a worshiper of something or someone. Because we were created to worship and praise If Jesus isn't your object of affection, if he isn't your object of worship, that means that your worship is being guided and directed towards something else. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something. Philosopher and professor Alvin Plantinga makes the case that while you scientifically can't prove the existence of God, he outlines how there are different clues for God's existence throughout the course of this life. Now, he goes on to make the point that our different desires and appetites and our need to be satisfied, all right, proves that that that, that can be a clue for God's existence because we were created to be fulfilled by something. And and he goes on to say this in in his book. He said, doesn't our natural craving for food reveal that food exists? 
Don't our natural desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them? And so what he means is this, is that exhaustion corresponds with sleep. Our need for community corresponds with friendship. And and frustration corresponds with being a Colts fan, right? (laughs) And so the reality is we all have a desire to be accepted, to be loved, to be needed. We all have this desire for community, for pleasure, And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have these needs and wants and desires that that no faster car, no bigger home, no relationship can ultimately satisfy. And so if you're here today and you find yourself in a perpetual state of just frustration and dissatisfaction, could it be that that is an alert, that is a warning sign, that is is the nudge of your creator saying you you were meant for a different place, you were meant for a greater world, you were meant for something bigger. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to look at this idea of daily worship by looking at Psalm chapter 145. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to uh, the Old Testament book of Psalms. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table right as you walked in a moment ago. Psalms is right in between the book of Job uh, and Proverbs or Proverbs and Job. It's right in the middle of your Bible, all right? And uh, we are going to be looking at the, the very tail end of Psalms today. Psalm chapter uh, 145. And so go ahead and turn there now, or if you have the app on your phone, go ahead and uh, pull that up. Now, as you're turning there, I want you to realize that this particular psalm was written by a man named David who was a king of Israel, okay? And so all throughout this psalm, what we're going to see is this call to worship, this call to praise and glorify God. Now, time out here for just a minute again. Now, if you're connecting the dots that we were created by God to worship and God calls us to worship him, doesn't that sound a little bit egotistical? I mean, doesn't that sound pretty prideful and self-centered? I mean, to create something only for the purpose of it bringing you glory and praise? I mean, how shallow do you have to be? I get that, and, and if that's where you're at, I just want you to hold that in the back of your mind because it's, it's perhaps revealing that, that we need to fully understand what worship is and how, uh, how more fully we, we were created to do this. And so check out Psalm 145. Here's what David says, beginning in verse one. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Now, I want you to notice how right off, David made this repetitive declaration that he would constantly glorify God forever. I mean, in just these two verses, he says the same thing about four different times in four different ways. He says, I will exalt you, I will praise you, I will praise you, I will extol your name forever and ever Now, what I love about this is that David, he didn't allow his worship and his communication to God to become predictable. I mean, it wasn't some formal method that that he morphed into. Because why? Whenever we fall back on cliche language and phrases and predictable answers, that's when intimacy in a relationship is compromised, right? Now, if we're fair, guys, you and I, we, we tend to struggle with this the most, don't we? Uh, this past Thursday night, uh, I was uh, reading, or I wasn't reading, I was telling a story to our two oldest kids who every single night, they, they want me to tell them a story. And, and so 
Here's how it kind of plays out in in, in our home. I ask them what they want the story to be about. John Ryman says one thing, usually has to do with a car. Vera says another thing, usually has to do with a princess or something, all right? And then I just kind of fuse those two objects into the same exact storyline every single night. And for the most part, they know no different. At least that's what I think. Okay, so Thursday night, I asked John Ryman, well, what do you want a story to be about? Well, I want it to be about a red GT Mustang. He loves GT Mustangs for some reason, all right? And so Vera said, I want it to be about a pink princess. All right, so I'm telling them this story. It's really late at night. It had been a really long day, and I find myself just dozing off. Husbands, guys, I know you never check out, all right, when it comes to talking with your wife or your kids, but I kind of checked out there in that moment. Towards the end of the story, I kind of stepped back into consciousness. I stepped back into awareness and I found myself saying this, and the pink princess drove the red Mustang down the road in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Now, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that that never happens in my time when I'm talking with God in my prayer life. But if I'm really honest with you, that kind of describes it a little bit, right? I find myself just kind of saying the same thing over and over again and hiding behind these phrases. And it's like I'm trying to impress God with what I'm trying to say. But if there's anything we learn about the book of Psalms, it's that God desires for us to be vulnerable with him. He wants us to be honest. It's not, I mean, if we really believe that he is sovereign and he is all-knowing anyway, that, that means that he knows our thoughts to begin with. So who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to hide from? You see, it's when we try to hide from God that that is when we tend to run from God. And when we run from God, we try to hide from God. Yet God invites us to be vulnerable with him. You know why? Because he is strong. He is secure. He is not some weak, insecure, shallow God who, who needs us to, to censor our language, to censor our feelings with him. No, he invites us to be honest with him, even when it may make us uncomfortable. And so all throughout Psalm 145, it seems as if David was aware of this natural instinct to worship something or someone. And so for the next few moments, what we're going to do is we're going to pull out some lessons about worship from this text. But I want you to know up front that by design, these points seem rather vague. They seem rather general. It's not specific to our worship to God. Now, here's why I've decided to go this direction. It's because maybe in the next few moments... You will be painfully honest with yourself and you will ask yourself, do the features of worship that that, that we're about to learn and that are about to be described, does it describe how you are giving God praise or is it more telling of how you have a pattern of worshiping something or something else or someone else? You see, when Jesus isn't our object of affection, something else is. And so here's the first lesson that we learn in the first two verses of Psalm 145, that what we worship is what has power over us. What we worship has power over us. It's that thing that controls or manipulates us. It motivates us. I want you to look again at the first uh, couple verses. David says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. There is a lot packed in a name, all right? Notice that David says that that he exalts God, not because of what God can do for him, but simply because of who God is. He is the Lord of Lords. And so don't miss the significance of what's playing out here in this verse. Here you have the most powerful man in the entire world at the time. 
A man who literally had influence and authority over millions of people, who was a king, yet going before and declaring and submitting himself before God and saying, you know what, it's really you that's the king. You are really the one who has power and authority. And as often as I forget that, God, I am telling you and I am reminding myself that you are the sovereign creator of God. You see, who God is tells us who we are. David wasn't perfect by any means. He was frequently put in situations where the object of his worship was revealed. When he had sex with a woman who wasn't his wife and then had her husband killed to cover it up, he was really idolizing himself. He was idolizing giving himself gratification. You see, manipulation and control is evidence that we like to be our own God. But then David walked through testing circumstances where it was really obvious that on that day, in that moment, he was looking to God for his identity. You see, after God told David that he was going to be the next king through a man named Samuel, God allowed David's influence to kind of slowly rise through the nation of Israel. And the king at the time, a guy by the name of Saul, got really jealous of David and he felt threatened by David's rise to influence. And, and so what Saul did was he went on this personal mission in Vendetta to have David killed. And so one day Saul got word of where David was and so he assembled 3,000 men to go and hunt and kill David. Talk about insecurities, all right? But I want you to look at what happens for Saul, uh, Saul and his men as they're in the midst of this hunt for David. 1 Samuel chapter 24 just gives us a picture of this. Verse three says this, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Don't you just love how the Bible is just so honest and gives so many details about things, right? Oh, I don't know if he's number one or number two, but we know that that's what he did, all right? Sorry about that, all right? Uh, save the email. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Notice how David's, how David's idol that day, if it had been himself, I want you to just kind of look at how things would have played out differently. I mean, had he been elevating his career, had he been elevating his position, had he been all about a certain title, he would have had Saul murdered. And yet what David turned out to do was he tuned out all the voices that told him that he needed to prove who he was. And so by releasing his ego and denying what would have been best for David, he glorified God that day. You see, the cave was a defining moment for David. The cave exposed David's object of worship. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes today, God puts us in the cave as well so that our object of affection can be revealed too. You see, these are moments that show us what or who is controlling us. And usually our caves aren't so obvious. They're rather subtle throughout the course of the day. I mean, maybe your cave is when someone has criticized you and you hear that they've talked poorly of you. 
And so is it possible that if your first immediate reaction is to immediately degrade that person's character, that in that moment it reveals you've really been putting a lot of worth and value in people's opinion of you rather than what God has already said? Or maybe your cave is when a friend of yours or a coworker happens to mention the name of someone who's pretty well known, who is popular, that also happens to be a friend of yours. And, and so then you find yourself going out of your way to let that person know, that coworker, hey, you know, I know that person, that person's a friend of mine. I've actually got their name in my phone book. And, and you see, when we go out of our way to do that, is it possible that that's revealing to you and others that You're putting a lot of your value and worth based upon who you know and your image. And you want to maintain this image of respect, right? Or it could be that whenever you oversleep and you don't have time to read the Bible in the morning and you miss out on prayer and you just feel guilty all day long believing that God is mad at you for what you did. And and you just kind of hold on to that shame and that guilt, not believing that He really loves you and that he cares for you and that like a good father, he is there for you. And so when we get more frustrated at our lack of obedience, is that revealing to you that maybe you're putting more weight on your act of obedience and discipline than who God is? Maybe you're putting more worth and value in that than what God has already done for us. You see, when we find ourselves living in this constant pressure to be good enough, respectable enough, and smart enough, we have forgotten who we are because we've lost sight of who God is. You see, true worship is being aware that as followers of Jesus, we have God's presence with us at all times. And you know what? We did nothing to deserve it. Let's move on with our text. Check out verses 3 and following. David goes on to say, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness nobody can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the, powerful, of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing all your righteous, of your righteousness. Do you notice a pattern playing out here? You see, David says that, that God is most worthy of praise, yet nobody can really fathom who he is. And so instead, what David does here in this moment is he reflects and he marvels over the awesome, glorious, just mighty works of what God has already done. Paintings reflect the personality of the artist. Music or how a song is written always reflects the emotions of a songwriter. And when we find ourselves captivated by a sunset or mesmerized by the intricacies of a human body, these are traces of the goodness and greatness of our God. You see, creation tells us so much about who God is that the Bible says that every person who dies outside of a relationship with Jesus, even if they never heard his name, will be without excuse one day. You know why? Because creation proclaims his glory. Now I want you to notice here how many times in just a few verses we see this idea of communicating, of telling other people about God's greatness. Now this brings us to our next point about our instinct to worship, and that's this, that what we worship is what we share with others. What we worship is what we share with others. Now, worship can't be confined within some walls of a building. 
I mean, if you're really excited about something, you are going to do whatever it takes to let other people know about it. I mean, if you have a favorite TV show and you want others to kind of share in your joy, what do you do? You text them, you call them, you let them know, hey, you're really going to love this next episode. And so for David, he couldn't keep God to himself, even though God was undescribable. And here's what I'm learning. You know you are starting to know God when you know how unknowable he really is. You know that you are starting to know God when you know how unknowable he really is. And when something is beyond explanation or is the source of so much joy for you, you want other people to join you in that contentment. You want other people to know about your source of worth and value. This past week, uh, our oldest, John Ryman, started preschool. And when he woke up in the morning, he was very adamant about wearing red and black to preschool on that day. And, and so Savannah later texted me, hey, be sure and ask John Ryman why he was so adamant about wearing red and black to, to preschool. And so I got home later that evening. And I said, hey, JR, I hear that you, you wore red and black to preschool today. Why was that? He said, well, daddy, daddy, everybody, all my new friends have to know that I cheer for the Louisville Cardinals. Not blue and white, all right? Then we'd really have to pray for deliverance. Uh, but, I mean, when you love something, you want other people to know about it, right? And so for David, his joy and his delight was rooted in his connection with God. And you see, all throughout the Bible, we see this pattern, this response playing out of when you have experienced the goodness of God that your natural response is to go out and share with others. Whenever Jesus was first born, we read in Luke chapter 2 that the angels came and, and went to the shepherds, and the shepherds said, hey, where, where is this Messiah that we've heard about? And so the angels pro were proclaiming God's glory and told the shepherds where Jesus had been born. They went and praised and worshiped God. And then the Bible tells us this little detail that the shepherds didn't return to their sheep, which would have been normal. No, they put their career on hold. They put their career, they risked their career by going into town and telling everybody what they had seen and heard. They were praising God by doing that. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, the start of the early church, they're in Jerusalem. They're going through all these cities telling people about Jesus and what he has done. And the religious leaders are like, you can't do that. Stop telling people about this Jesus, all right? And so they arrest them. And then eventually Peter and John are like, you can do with us what you want, but we can't stop telling people about what we have seen and what we have heard. When you've experienced something great, you want other, people's, other people to join you in it, Right? I love being a part of a church that does this so well. I don't know if you know this, but every Wednesday night we have one of our volunteers named Donna who from Posey County brings about 14 to 16 high school students every single week to our high school worship service here on Wednesday evening. And nobody's asked her to do this. Donna doesn't get paid to do it. It's a long drive. It's her bus that she owns. That's why it's called the D train because Donna buses in these students every single week. Now, what would motivate somebody to do that? I mean, why would you waste all that money, all that time, and invest in students like, like, like that of bringing them here on a Wednesday night? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> it's because Donna knows who she is. Donna knows what has been given to her. 
Donna realizes that she's been forgiven, she's been freed. She knows what it means when God said that while you were still an enemy of God, he sent Christ to die for us. And so she knows that whenever those students show up on our campus for the first time, regardless of what their day has looked like, regardless of what they have encountered at school, they are going to experience an environment here that is welcoming and that is loving and that is accepting. And she knows that they will not only hear about the grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus, but they will experience it as well. And I am so glad that nobody has told her otherwise because you know what? This past March at our high school retreat, six of those students gave their lives to Jesus for the very first time. You see, when you've been given something valuable, when you've been given something worthy, you want other people to join you in it as well. True worship can't be silenced, fenced in, or contained. I gotta tell you, this past week as I was studying for this message, And I got to this section. I just had one of those moments where I was like, I just conviction. And here's what I wrote down. I said, what does my silence and sharing Jesus say about where my worship is directed? And so I would ask you the same question. Where does, what does your silence and sharing Christ with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with Waiter or waitress, say about where your worship is directed. You see, when our fear of rejection is greater than our boldness to share, could it mean that we have forgotten the God that we have served? Could it be that we have forgotten what we have experienced and what we have been given? I'm not trying to guilt you into anything, but I am saying simply go back and marvel at what God has already done. And you see, when you comprehend his vastness and greatness and his kindness, a natural response is to go out and say, hey, here's what I've been given. It's really good. I want you to come and see and be a part of it as well. Let's get back to to Psalm 145. Skip down to verse 17. David now shifts to praising God for for his ability to deliver those who have called upon his name. This is what God specializes in. It's what he does best. He says this, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. You see, David here is affirming God that he is the one true God who is worthy to be worshipped. You see, idols in our life enslave us. But it's God who delivers us. Now, to understand the significance of God's ability to deliver, we need to understand who we are apart from Jesus. You see, who we are today, if you are a follower of Christ, means that we realize who we used to be. You know, the Bible gives us a lot of illustrations, analogies, and images to describe who we are apart from God. Mankind has been made in the image of God. We know that to be true from the very beginning of Scripture, but because we're born in this sin condition with this bent towards rebellion against God, we're separated from our Creator. Because he is holy and because he is good, he can't have any kind of association with anything that's not. And trust me, you don't want a sovereign creator God who's controlling but is not good. And so because God is both good and controlling, he can't have association with anything that is sinful. David says it like this in Psalm chapter 51, he acknowledges his sin nature. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, as cute and cuddly as those babies were up here just a moment ago, they will never need to be taught how to be selfish, right? (laughs) 
I mean, it's just a natural instinct that we have. Life is about us from the moment that we're born. And so our dual instinct to worship and to be all about ourselves is a toxic mixture which leads to exalting ourselves. I mean, for example, if you're pushing back right now, and you know, I'm a humble person. I take a lot of pride in my humility. Um, When someone takes a photo of you in a group of people and they turn around to share that photo with you, who's the first person that your eyes notice? Turn to the person beside you and share with them right now. Okay, if you said anybody but yourself, then turn to the person beside and call them a liar, all right? Why? Our eyes are drawn to how we come across, to how we look, how the, the impression that we're giving off, right? Now, this sounds really extreme and invasive, but this is the idolatry of self. And so our result is that, that we have misplaced worship. This is why Tim Keller says that behind every sin that we commit is an idol, And you see, before receiving forgiveness through Jesus, we are not only slaves to sin, but we are slaves to the consequences of sin, which the Bible says is death. Therefore, in God's goodness and compassion, he has provided us a way out and a better way to live. He not only has the authority to deliver us from our sin, but he has the power and authority to deliver us from what we deserve and to give us a new name. You see, who God is tells us who we are. And if you have called out to God, And you are with him. Look at what verse 19 assures us. That he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. You see, this is the promise of a God who knows best. This comes from a father in scripture who is described as a good God who gives every children of his gifts You see, only he can provide a better way to live. And so from this, there's one more thing that we learn about our instinct to worship, and it's this. What we worship, what we worship is what we desire most. Now, our desires are obvious because it's what we spend a lot of money on. It's what we think about all the time. And it's that thing, that lifestyle or feeling that has maybe caused us to make choices that sacrifice our families. Our desires are very powerful motivators. Now, sometimes what we want isn't what's God's best for us. But you see, the reality is, despite what you've maybe been told or taught before about your desires, the root of all of our desires is neutral. Our creator has actually given them to us. They're gifts And so when we long for pleasure, when we long for recreation, community, security, adventure, acceptance, peace, and significance, we desire good things that God wants to satisfy. But here's where we have a tendency to go off off balance. When we look to satisfy those desires in all the wrong ways, we satisfy them in, 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 in lesser capacities. Author uh, Kent Dunnington writes about a friend of his who's a paramedic, and one evening this paramedic responded to an anonymous call about a heroin addict who had been left alone all by himself in his apartment. So when the paramedic got to the apartment, he walked in, and he was just overwhelmed by the foul odor in his place that evening, and trash everywhere, drug paraphernalia all over the apartment. He walked back into the guy's bedroom, and there the heroin addict was just crouched down in a corner, shaking, shivering, near death. And so Dunnington asked his friend, so so what was it like when you walked in there for the first time? And his response was shocking. It was stunning. He said, it it was terrible. It was horrific. 
He said, but for the first time, I understood what it looks like to worship. Now, Dunnington goes on to make the case that an addiction is really a form of worship. It's a, it's a false form of worship that leads us to a false god, but it's worship nonetheless. You see, it's evidence that, that we have desires and appetites that need to be satisfied, and, and we pursue gratification. And so an addiction is simply pursuing that gratification and going and doing it over and over and over again. John Ortberg says that there's no such thing as an uncommitted person. And so for you, a way to determine the object of your worship is to just ask yourself, well, what do I always get defensive about? What's the source of your frustration? I mean, what is that thing that you're always pouring money into? What is the reason you sometimes tell half-truths to people when they ask you how you're doing? I mean, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? And so David here says that only God can be the satisfier of our hungry and thirsty souls. But what exactly does this look like for us? Well, it's interesting that in verse 19 of our text, the root word that we translate fulfilled from Hebrew to English is also the same word used in other parts of the Old Testament to describe the act of God receiving a sacrificial offering from the priest on behalf of the Jewish people. So whenever the priest would make an animal sacrifice on behalf of the people, it was the culminating act of worship that God required to temporarily satisfy sin. And so is it any coincidence that David used the same word to describe a desire that had been fulfilled with the act of worship itself? Author C.S. Lewis says it like this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. So we were created to praise God through our desires, not apart from them. God delights in our surrender. He delights in our sacrifice. About eight years ago, National Geographic did a study that revealed something really surprising that, that animals who are born in a zoo environment, if released back out into the wild, 70% of them won't make it. They, they won't make it past, I think, a, a two-year period that they will die. Now, that study included wolves and cheetahs and lions and bears and tigers and oh my, all right, <laughs> Now, that surprised me a little bit because you think, man, they're top of the food chain, that there's no reason why they wouldn't survive. And yet the study revealed that the animals, because they had learned to be so dependent on their environment, they never learned the necessary survival, survival skills or, or what it looked like to actually hunt out in the wild. Now, here's what's sadly ironic about that. A lion wasn't created to be in a cage. A bear wasn't made to, to be in the confines of a zoo, right? And this may be a little bit of a stretch for you, but I wonder if that kind of describes our story. I wonder if we have been created for something much greater, for something much more sufficient, and yet our tendency, because we have been dependent upon something for so long, is to have those desires fulfilled by other things. And so what if true worship to the one and only God alone is what we were meant for and what we were created for. And we're almost done here. 
Matthew, who is a friend of Jesus, an eyewitness of his life, describes when Jesus breathed his last breath when he hung upon the cross that the temple curtain was torn into two and behind that curtain was where the presence of God had previously dwelt before Christ giving us access to our creator. Worship was something that you did in a specific place at a specific time and through a specific person, but not anymore. Because what God did in that moment was he broke down the barrier between us and himself, allowing himself to be crucified. And so Jesus met the demands for us of what, require, uh, of what God requires. Therefore, since God's presence has been given to us every single moment of the day, we can now be released from slavery into the life that we were created to live by surrendering ourselves to him and finding a lot of joy and contentment there as well. Now next week, we're gonna wrap this series up by looking at Psalm chapter 150 and, and really what it looks like for us to gather together as God's people, as the church, and, and praise him corporately week in and week out. What, what does that look like? What's it supposed to look like? And then what's it not supposed to look like? And so before next week, and wherever you are in your journey, I just have a little bit of a homework assignment to you. I want you to read back through Psalm 145, the text that we just read through. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, just read through Psalm 145 every single day this week. I don't want you to ask God for anything. I don't want you to come before him with any requests, just for a few days, okay? And when David talks about the awesome works of God, when he talks about the goodness and the compassion of our Father, I just want you to allow that to be reflect, to, to cause that to be reflective in your own life and, and think back, how has God been good to me? How have I seen him at work in my life? And do that each and every day this week, Psalm 145, uh, and then we're gonna pick up next week with Psalm 150. Let's pray, all right? Gotta know that sometimes we get so distracted by life and so many lesser things compete for our attention and affection. And, and God, I'm just grateful that you're patient with us. Even when we don't deserve to be patient with, you're faithful to us in spite of our unfaithfulness. And so God, would you just remind us as your people of your goodness and when we forget, Lord, forgive us. And so God, give us just an awareness. Give us the eyes to see how you are at work all around us every single day. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.